Somehow I managed this evening not to hear the bell announcing the beginning of the the talk and maybe I wasn't the only one. But uh, it seemed appropriate in the occasion that my intention for the evening was to speak about the art of unknowing. What it means to perhaps approach our life and our practice from a an orientation that's rather different than the very normal and familiar knowledge-based framework. In our society, we sometimes talk about this particular era or period in human culture, history and evolution as the information age. It's kind of interesting, information age. We've got so much of that stuff that it defines they are the primary feature of what's happening, it seems. And the world of knowledge is something that's been very powerful, very transformative, and of course brought many benefits. And yet, it's also the case that there are some profound limitations for our life as human beings if we are oriented primarily or exclusively in the direction of knowledge. So much of what we call education in our world is to, I think, an excessive degree, um, simply the accumulation of knowledge and the development of skills for manipulating information, which can, again, be powerful, can be useful, but, you know, we don't necessarily learn in what we call our education system some of the really fundamental things that we need to know that aren't really to do with knowledge, and yet for us there's a very strong belief or view that both power and meaning in life are derived from knowledge, from information, from having it, from accumulating it, from manipulating it, in terms of being able to organise it and develop it. And someone once observed, I think, very wisely in this regard you know what use is it knowing how to put a man on the moon if we do not know how to get on with our neighbours and I would go even to say if we do not know how to get on with ourselves our most immediate neighbours we could say and some of that learning is part of the territory of what we're engaged in here. There's a different kind of understanding that isn't about information. Although it may make use of it. And the spiritual journey that we're engaged in, that these teachings, these practices, this path that we're exploring here together, this spiritual journey in many ways runs counter to the values of our ordinary culture and society, the kind of positions that are taken, almost for granted it seems, unquestioned, as to what is true, real or meaningful. And in the context of spirituality and its transformative depths, power and meaning do not derive from knowledge, but are really born of recognising 
something other than that, which is unknowable in terms of the conceiving mind. And there's lots of ways we can begin to just reflect on and usefully explore what this means for us, where this leaves us. There's a what I find a, a lovely reflection or observation that I believe originates with Lao Tzu, though I'm not sure, where he observed, I think it was him, doesn't really matter who it was, in fact. He said, I awoke from dreaming I was a butterfly. And then I wondered, am I a man who has just dreamed of being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly dreaming of being a man? And there's something about that, that I find the sort of the traces of uncertainty that that just taps into. That's something quite lovely. In fact, something quite uplifting, although obviously potentially a little confusing if one isn't quite sure in that case. But what do we really know if we come down to the fundamentals of it? What do we really know? You know, just the very fact the world is here and we're in it. How did that happen? How did that happen? You know, if we're going to want to know anything, don't we want to know that? If we look at what, you know, human views and opinions about all of that come to, there's a wide range of them. They sometimes cause arguments, occasionally and rather tragically, they can even lead to wars. But when it comes down to it, there's kind of a couple of versions, which is that kind of some divine being said, boof, and there it was. It's one way. It's sometimes talked about. That's how it came to be. Someone conceived or imagined it and then made it. Sounds, you know, plausible, I guess. Um, but these days, for a lot of us, um, that explanation doesn't quite seem to, you know, land in a way that we can trust or rely on. Maybe for some it does. And then, you know, modern scientific knowledge, and that's really the religion of our times, certainly the most widely believed and uh, subscribed to, it would seem to me, is uh, you know, scientific perspective. And uh, you know, science has basically figured out that you know, when they've got right back down to that place some several billion years ago, which is a long time ago, there was nothing. And then, in an amount of time that's so small it can't be measured, suddenly it all happened. Bang. Here it was. They called it the Big Bang. Just kind of original. But if we stop and think about that, what does that tell us? Nothing. More than the religious explanations we might have heard. It's just there was nothing and then there was something. How did it do that? We don't know. How did we come to be? Well, we know something about biology, probably. So we've got some idea of how some of that worked, but that only could happen because of what happened before it that our parents were here, and theirs, and theirs, and that human beings evolved or appeared, or however we got onto this planet. I always like the, uh, the image of a, um, a Larson cartoon, The Far Side, where you've got this sort of uh, picture of planet Earth with some trees and some creatures, and then there's a cloud above it, and a voice coming from the cloud, and... On the earth is a test tube jar with it's broken and inside it are humans. 
and the, the glass is broken up the top, it's going, damn, I didn't mean to drop that. <laughs> you know, could be one way how we got here, and it might explain a few things if it really happened that way. The explanations don't really cut it. The truth is we don't know how it came to be that this is here, that we are here, and that it's like this. We can know how it is, but how it came to be? That's a mystery. That's beyond knowledge. And there's something that's actually really helpful about opening to this. There's a certain humility that comes when we say, oh, okay, yeah, so... You know, some of the territory isn't knowable, actually. There's a, there's a humility in that, but there's also something quite uplifting in the sense of possibility. Because when we allow the unknownness of things to be there, although in some contexts, of course, it can be scary, in another way, what it actually opens up is a vastness of possibility. And there's something about that that's really potent as an agent in our practice, as a, as, a, as a kind of a crystal in the process of transformation, the sense of unbounded possibility. or un, so We can't sort of close things down to a single answer or a single explanation. Or if we do so, we only manage to do so by disregarding a whole lot of what's actually here. So there's something about not knowing, about a certain degree of uncertainty that's really helpful in spiritual practice, that really can uh, make a difference to how we experience things. One of the qualities we seek to cultivate in practice is a certain openness and curiosity that's based on understanding, recognizing and respecting the fact that we don't necessarily yet know everything about what's happening here. That some of it we can meet, experience, understand, yes. But some of it we don't really yet fully know. And I was just struck in having what seemed for me to be a a fortunate few minutes of time available to go and do some walking meditation on the lawn and being, as I imagine a few of you have been, more drawn to that than sometimes has been the case due to the rather wonderfully pleasant conditions of sunshine and dry grass and, you know, um, and that, and, and having some time to do some walking on the lawn. I was saying to Leela, I don't remember when I last did that while teaching a retreat, but it was very nice, at least for that length of time, half an hour or so. But one thing I kept noticing was how my eye kept wanting to go down to my foot to see where it was going to land. Because without shoes on, as many of you were also, you know, you put it on something, there's a small chance it's going to be something sharp there. Or possibly a creature there that I don't want to harm and equally I don't want to harm me. And so that, that, that kind of actually placing my foot without my foot being in the field of vision was... You didn't have to, I didn't have to sort of think, oh, I think I put it down there really carefully. If it wasn't in the field of vision, the natural and obvious response is, oh, put it down carefully. Be really sensitive so that if you are about to put your foot on something sharp or something dangerous or something vulnerable, you'll notice it, hopefully, and be able to lift it up. That quality of not knowing invites us or, in fact, directs us very naturally to pay attention. When we think we already know what's going on, 
we stop paying attention. And that's one of the great um, consequences, harmful consequences of our assumption that we know what's going on. So we stop paying attention. I had a very, say, graphic and powerful lesson in this particular truth sometime now, many, many years ago, when I was still living in New Zealand and uh, I would enjoy, it seems something Lever and I share, to go walking in the mountains. Uh, and uh, on this particular occasion I was with some, a couple of friends and we were doing a, a winter crossing of an alpine route in the south, south Island of New Zealand, and there was a place where you had to walk out across a lake, a frozen lake, because the, the normal route was underneath some bluffs that would easily avalanche on you if you walked too close to them. So the, the summer route w- went round a track under the cliff, but the winter route was across the frozen lake. And so this is you know, not something particularly unusual or outrageous in those kind of situations, and walking with my two friends, and just with the ice axe who carried plunging it into the ice every step, just checking the ice was solid, even though it's supposed to be solid and frozen at that time of year, but that's what you do. It's what's smart and wise. And in the, it was, I guess, maybe 200 yards to cross at this point. And so we went out, and for some reason I was in front and just checking and checking. And after, I guess, 50, 60, 70 yards, it was like everything, it's solid. Every time it's solid. And it's like, it's solid. This ice is fine. Started putting the axe in every two or three steps, and every four or five, six steps. Then at one point, as I was just walking along, as we were, suddenly the ice gave way and I went through the ice. And this is a deep lake, we're talking hundreds of metres, and it's freezing cold water. And I'm wearing quite a heavy backpack. And through the ice. And fortunately, Probably I'm only telling the story here because I didn't go all the way through. I caught myself with my arms, with this much of my body, hanging in very deep water. And just, whoa. And then, not quite knowing how this had happened, but realising I should have kept testing every step, I kind of just gently managed to lever myself out. And the ice around me held. And my friends kind of came very carefully past this piece and stepped over it. To one side, and we kept going, and I still leading, and you know, every single step, I tested with the ice axe, and every single step, despite having tested with the ice axe, I put my foot down gingerly, I leaned the weight into it slowly, I felt the first inch of soft snow go beneath my boot, and then onto the firm ice, and every time my heart just went, Is it going to be going through? I'd never done walking meditation or heard of it in my life, but you know, I was more mindful in that 100 metres walking off probably than I've ever been (laughs) on a retreat because it was really important. And it was that process of seeing how we start to assume we know where the ground is or what the ground is and what it's like. And when we don't, we instinctively, naturally and in a sense, effortlessly want to pay attention. It's not because we should. It was we want, I wanted to know what was under my feet in that situation. And the same thing happens for us as we start to kind of recognize and then release the kind of trance of belief and knowing more than we really actually do about life, about things. 
we start to become curious, we start to become interested, we start to ask, well, so what is it like to take a step on the earth? And we might see that although knowledge promises or offers, it seems, a sense of power or security, and there's so much of it in our worlds these days, so much information we can have. And yet, you know, it seems that the more information we get, the more things there are to be concerned about. It's not actually reassuring to watch the 24-hour news programs. Have you noticed? It doesn't actually make you feel, oh, good, I know what's going on. Wow, I can relax now. No, it makes one feel, oh, help, you know. We've gone mad. Well, that's my experience sometimes. Yours might be different. And that movement of anxiety that takes us into the future with this concern for what's it going to be like? What's it going to be like? What's going to happen? You know? We don't really need or want to know what's going to happen. We think we do. That's part of the information we'd like to have. Probably most of us, if we were told, you know, look, you could know the future. Do you want to know the future? We'd think, oh, yeah, that'll be useful. I could think of some uses for it. You know, despite having seen that movie, Back to the Future, and realised that it's going to cause a lot of trouble, we'd still think, yeah, I'd like to know. I once saw a movie where it was a sort of kind of, I was a teenager, it was a silly science fiction sort of fantasy movie in a way. This race of beings had been granted the capacity to know the future in a way that they hadn't quite anticipated. Having wanted it, what they all got to see was the point of their own death. Do we really want to know the future? It might be useful. But actually, might be we'd rather actually leave, live with that one open. Curious, huh? Which pieces of the future we might want to know? It, when we orient towards information, we don't get to choose, necessarily. And a lot of what comes to us generates unease, anxiety. And the mind tends to focus on this and pick this up. And part of that is because of the way that sense of knowledge and information is used to construct a continuity of our existence into the future and all our effort to maintain and sustain it. So there's also something that happens when we step out of the world of time. There's a poem by Wendell Berry. Speaks to how this works in the natural world that doesn't operate within that framework of, of time and past and future. Entitled The Peace of Wild Things, he writes, When despair for the world comes upon me and I awake at the slightest sound in fear of what my life and what my children's lives may be. I go down to where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. 
I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a while I rest in the grace of the world and am free. There is a a grace and a freedom in stepping out of that particular paradigm. That doesn't mean it doesn't have its place and of course we need to do a certain amount of organising and planning around time and place in order to even arrive at a, a Dharma talk or at a sitting on time and even get to the retreat in the first place. Yeah, sure. But that world of time can come to dominate in a way that's out of relationship with the fact that it's simply a construct. The past and the future sometimes appear so real to us as if they're more real than the present, more real than what's happening right here. And yet they're not. They're just so ephemeral. Of course, the past has an impact in the present, and that's real. Equally as the present has an impact in the future. And we really are well served to take care of that, to understand the relationships that are involved in that process. But the the, the pivot, the crux, the, what it turns on is what's here now and where we are in this moment and in each moment as that moment becomes what's right here. And so this orienting to life based in time where the past and the future are given more reality, it seems, or more airtime in our thinking, our relating, our conceiving, It's profoundly unsatisfying. It's like the sense of time, and we can use the word duration for time. Duration very easily gives rise to the sense of endurance. Enduring, just sort of making it through. The enduring we've talked about and reflected of enduring the sitting. You know, making it to the end. And so much of the sense of struggle in life has to do with that sense of endurance, the way we conceive in terms of time. How much of our grasping at experiences trying to keep hold of is because we want them to endure, sustain in time. How much of our resisting and pushing away of the difficult is because we fear that this will endure or continue in time. And yet we see experience changes. It's slippery, fluid, dynamic, alive. And the the sense of relating to it in terms of time, we don't see that so easily when we're relating to past and future in the way that we do. And we likewise think in terms of progress and success so much dependent upon time and measurement These are concepts, these are ideas that we create. We, you know, probably understandably and, you know, in a certain way appropriately can be seeking to develop an increased degree of calmness of mind or concentration or an increased degree of loving kindness and friendliness of heart and equally an increased degree of understanding of wisdom. And all of these qualities are wholesome and beautiful 
and beneficial and worthy of developing and cultivating. But so often what we do in the process of that is we relate to them in terms of, am I getting more? Am I improving? Am I developing in time? And, and it's like we use certain experiences as a way of trying to measure ourselves, as a way of trying to evaluate ourselves. Am I better now than I was? Am I more successful at this or more developed at this now than I was? And the thing is it doesn't really work because although we might see a progression at times or a, what we could call a regression at times, there isn't any fixed measuring point or standard against which we can compare except the one we create in the story of who I think I was or how I think I was in the past and who I think I am now or how I think I am now and likewise to the future. This whole process of trying to value ourselves based on progression, it goes up sometimes and it goes down. That's how it is. You know, sometimes we're sitting in meditation and, you know, it's been hard for days, or maybe not so hard for days, but suddenly things get calm, clear. It feels like we settle in and it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, yes, this is what they were talking about. Oh, oh, yeah, I understand now the Dharma. Oh, great. Wow, this meditation, that's good. It's, I can see why people do it a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then we sort of start to have this image of, you know, this spiritual career unfolding. And, you know, we're going to do some long retreats. Then maybe we might ordain, become a nun or a monk, live in a cave. We can imagine people coming and bringing offerings of food, sort of, in the, sort of a radiant glow of light outside that attracts the villagers to come and pay respect. You know, and it's just like, oh. you know, this, this kind of, this whole story unfolds. As a progression in time. It's like success. This is it. We finally got it. Meditative spiritual success. Hallelujah. And then of course at some point in this journey we rose of our mind. We rose, oh, uh, okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> we realize that we're completely spaced out. We don't even know where our body is or even maybe that we've got one and that we're lost in this whole big story and it's kind of got just a little bit inflated, a little bit ungrounded and we oh. I'm hopeless. I'm used. I can't do this. I've just been lost for ages in this fantasy. And then it's like, you know, a moment ago we were going to meditate for years. Now it's like, I've had it. I'm out of here. I'm not even going to bother with the rest of the sitting. I'm going home. You know, and we're, we're heading out for the car. Or calling the taxi. It's like, and again, we've projected that moment of getting lost as somehow a definition of our whole retreat experience and as a a limitation of our whole potential as a human being. Like, it's no good, can't do it. And in both of those movements, there's a way in which we fix a sense of me into a something. A good something or a bad something. A successful something or an unsuccessful something. And yet the truth of it is, we can't do that. Because no matter what's going on, it's always in relationship to conditions that we can't always be conscious of or aware of and so sometimes we might feel like things are really calm and I might think I'm doing really well and maybe but maybe just that right now things are really easy and it's easy to do well and other times we might feel really agitated or struggling and we might think oh I'm just hopeless at this but actually we might be doing really well because things are really tough and just to be there 
as I was saying to someone, or was it in a group, I can't remember, I think maybe someone this morning, or sometime in the last two days, I can't, you know, there are times when I've been so tired in meditation that success felt like just not falling off the cushion. You know? And that would be enough to say, wow, that was good. I made it. I didn't fall off the cushion. It's so relative. And it's a bit like if we were walking, but we couldn't tell what the incline under our feet was. And sometimes it was really steep, and we thought, oh, wow, it's really hard. Maybe I'm not very good at this. Or sometimes it was pointing downhill. Oh, this is easy, yeah. Because we can't actually know that. We can't know all it is that we've been called to handle in a moment, or that we're not handling in a moment. And uh, I remember once having this really difficult experience um, when I was cycling once, and I was feeling like, oh, I'm getting nowhere. There's no wind. I should be able to fly along. It's a flat road. And, you know, why can't I get anywhere? I was like, and then it was only after we'd been going for quite a few miles on this road that I realized, oh, actually, it's on an incline. But it, this was on the Canterbury Plains of New Zealand. It's this big, vast, flat plateau. You can't tell that the whole thing is a little bit like this because it's all like that. And again, it's like, oh, I actually, I was going uphill all the way. But you couldn't tell. And it wasn't that my legs had suddenly lost their conditioning or I'd turned into a hopeless cyclist. It was just that. Ah, oh, and sometimes that's how it is for us. So we often want to know, you know, how we're doing. And there's a story, I'm sure quite a few of you will hear me t- have heard me tell before, but I think it says it as well as it can ever be said um, in terms of how well we're doing. And this was on a ret- this, um, took place on a retreat in America that was being taught by Jack Cornfield, who's a... Uh, one of the senior teachers and uh, you know, kind of sort of elders of our insight meditation tradition. And uh, several days into the retreat, one of the staff members on the course asked Jack about one of the people sitting to the retreat who he knew. And he said, Can you tell me how my friend's doing? And Jack said, Oh, yeah, your friend's doing really well, doing very well. So he asked about someone else, and Oh, yeah, that person, they're doing very well too. And someone else in the room, she asked, oh, What about my friend? Oh, yeah. Your friend's doing really well. And, uh, and the first person said, you know, getting a little suspicious, he said, Jack, what do you mean by doing very well? And Jack smiled. He said, oh, they're still here. <laughs> so if you're wondering how you're doing, it's quite straightforward. The whole world of past and future is one of the reasons it has such a hold for us is that it seems to offer that kind of field in which we can somehow move forward in terms of this idea of who we are or who we wish to be. And there's a certain level of truth to that, of course. But there's... Something about actually turning to the present moment, where we look at it, where we see that there's something fluid, unfixed and undefinable about what it means to be right here. Part of why it's hard to stay present, in case you're wondering, 
maybe that's not been hard for you, but for the rest of us, one of the reasons that it's hard is that it doesn't give us so much feedback about who we are. Because the who we are feedback that we tend to want to is always comparing one thing to another. This to that. Gone forwards, gone backwards. Improved or backsliding. And so that sense of who I am that's always in comparison to or in contrast to something else, when we're really in the present, there isn't any basis for that to be fixed or to be held so easily. And it kind of leaves a certain openness that initially is really uncomfortable so that we'd almost prefer to be able to form some kind of negative or critical conclusion of ourselves than just to not know, than to just not know. One of the reasons the mind often slides into that territory is because it's somehow easier to believe and to convince ourselves of, even though it's not true, than something more positive or affirmative. And again, because of the way the mind's tendency and the orientation is towards bad news. And we see it in the newspapers. We see it in the way the mind picks out certain pieces of information about the world, about ourselves, and focuses on them and creates what's inevitably a limited and partial picture. But we'd rather have that limited and partial picture of the world or of oneself than say, actually, I don't know. I can't put it in a box. I can't put this world in a box. I can't put this human being in a box and say, it's one of those. Or it's like this. Because the truth of it is that for many of us, much of the time, that's kind of a bit scary or shaky or wobbly. And we're not quite sure how to do that or how to handle that. We haven't learned yet to hold that to find the space to allow that to rest. So there's something very interesting that happens for us if we're willing to take that risk. To just not know quite so much with regard to ourselves. To not form such hard conclusions. And it really can transform how we relate to ourselves, to others also. There's a story I'd like to read. And the story concerns a monastery that had fallen upon hard times. Once a great order, but now as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution and the rise of secularism, all of its branch houses were lost and it had become decimated to the extent there were only five monks left in the decaying mother house, the abbot and four others, all over seventy in age. Clearly it was a dying order. In the deep woods surrounding the monastery there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town used for a hermitage. And as he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot to visit the hermitage and ask the rabbi if by some possible chance the rabbi could offer any advice that might save the monastery. And so the abbot went and knocked at the door of the rabbi's hermitage and she opened the door and invited him in. But when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, she said. The spirit has gone out of the people. It is the same in my town. 
Almost no one comes to the synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi wept together. Then they read holy scriptures and read and spoke quietly of deep things. Until the time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all these years, the abbot said. But I have still failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me? No piece of advice you can give me that would help me save my dying order? No, I am sorry, the rabbi said. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, Well, what did the rabbi say? She couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the scriptures together. The only thing she did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic, was that the Messiah is one of us. I don't know what she meant. And in the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us. Could she possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you mean, do you suppose she meant the abbot? Yes, if she meant anyone, she probably meant Father Abbot. He has been our leader for over a generation. But on the other hand, she might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everyone knows that Thomas is a man of light. And certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets very angry at times. But come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive. He's just this real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow appearing there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, the rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did. Supposing I am the Messiah. Oh my God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated in this manner, the old monks began to treat each other with extraordinary respect. On the off chance that one amongst them might be the Messiah. And on the off-off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, to picnic on its tiny lawn, to wander along some of its paths, even now and then to go into the old dilapidated chapel to meditate. And as they did so, even without being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks and seemed to radiate out from them and permeate the atmosphere of the place. There was something strangely attractive, even compelling, about it. Hardly knowing why, they began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them the special place. And their friends brought their friends. And then it happened, after some time, that some of the younger men who came to visit the monastery started to talk more and more 
with the old monks. And after a while, one asked if he could join them. And then another. And another. And within a few years, it turned out that the monastery had once again become a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant centre of light and spirituality in the realm. So how would it be to be that uncertain about ourselves and each other? How would it be to just imagine that possibly we may be the Messiah, the prophet, the Christ, the next Buddha? Not saying and assuming that we are going to be. That might be going a little far. But though we might, how could we know? And what would it be to treat ourselves with that extraordinary degree of respect? On the off-off chance that it just might be so. This quality of unknowing, of uncertainty, opens something up that's really powerful when we can allow ourselves to to trust and in a way take the risk that's inherent in the uncertainty, that's a vulnerability, that's an openness, but that also offers so much possibility. For most of us, it's really uncomfortable. For myself, I'm certainly aware of how that's uncomfortable when we don't know something that we want to know. You know, there's this urge to want to know, to kind of get the information. And our modern world has come out with technology that allows us most of the time to not have to sit in that place of not knowing. We can just... Google it or we can point an app at it and something recognises even where we are or what it is we're looking at and gives us its history, you know, instantly. It's amazing. And yet there's something really lost in that. It's like, what's it like for us when we hear the sound of the... whatever birds they are and we're sitting there, you know, there's the sound and then there's, oh, crows. Oh, no, is it rooks? Is it crows? Just, are rooks the ones you get lots of or is it crows? And we kind of start going into this little, trying to figure out what the sound, the sound is this noise that goes, or you know how it goes. You know? And these days it might not even be rooks or crows, it might be someone with an app on their phone that makes that noise. Because it's a real problem that people have these apps and they use them to attract birds and then the birds get confused about what's a bird and what's an app. Really. <laughs> the, uh, the Royal uh, Forest and Bird are concerned about it now as an issue. It's people want to see the bird rather than leave the bird going to its nest or feeding its children, so they play its call on their phone. People come. Birds come. But, uh, yeah, we don't know. And what is it like to just say, okay, it's a sound? Because that we know, that's enough. But could that be enough for us to know? Oh, it's a sound. It's like this. It's kind of croaky and a bit raspy and quite loud sometimes. That's what it is. 
rather than having to attribute it to a source that right now we can't be sure of. So we stay with the immediacy, the knowing that's immediate, that's very different, has a very different quality than the creating of information, concepts and constructs around it in order to locate it and therefore be able to make use of it for ourselves and for our security. There's something uncomfortable about not knowing. But it's a, a discomfort that it's really worth making friends with. Voltaire once observed, he said, Uncertainty is indeed an uncomfortable condition. But certainty? Certainty is ridiculous. It's true. So much is uncertain. And yet something in us so much wants that certainty, so deeply holds to it. And uh, I had a very powerful lesson in this, which I'd just like to share. When I was uh, teaching a retreat in Australia some time ago, in uh, Wat Buddha Dhamma, which is a uh, sort of retreat centre monastery in the uh, in the Dara National Park in New South Wales. I arrived the day before the retreat was due to begin and having flown out from England, um, I'd given myself a couple of days just to land and was shown to a little hut or cootie as it's called in the woods, some distance from where the retreat would take place, you know, half a mile, a mile away or so. And I, I rested a little and then I thought I'd go out in the evening for, or the late afternoon for a run because it's one of the things I do to kind of regulate my body when I'm travelling and uh, engaged and often spending a lot of time sitting around not doing very much at all. And so I went out for a run and uh, I was running out along this track for a while and then at some point, because the, the forest was thick and dense and you couldn't see anything and I was really, you know, I'd like to get a view, I'd like to get a view and see where I am. And uh, I couldn't. So... At one point, I thought, oh, there's a, there's a nice hill, there's a ridge, and I think I can follow that up and I'll probably be able to see from the top. So I left the path and I followed the ridge, I think maybe five, eight minutes up the hill, and got to the top, and I couldn't really see that much from there because still the trees were quite tall at the top, and I was oh, a bit disappointed. So I headed back down. And I went back down, just following the line that I'd come up on. And I've been going down for about 10, 12 minutes, oh, I haven't spotted the path. Oh, strange. I went a little further. Oh, I must have missed it. No, that's all right. It's going to be up there. So I just went back up, back to where I started, and then, okay, I know where it is, and I went back down. No path. Went a little further down this time. Still. Maybe I, maybe I you know, went further than I realised when I went up. So I went further down. No path. So I went back up. And all the while, because I'm relatively experienced in that kind of you know, outdoor situation and uh, spent a lot of time there, um, you know, so I'd paid attention, I'd looked for where my orientation was and I was quite clear, I knew where the path was and what must have happened was somehow I'd missed it. I went up and down that hill several times over the next two hours, by which time it was getting dark. And all along it was like, I know where the path is, it's down there. But I couldn't find it. And at some point I was like, gosh, okay, it's dark now. Um, maybe I better, I'm going to have to sleep out here because... I don't want to, you know, it's quite steep. I don't want to injure myself trying to go up and down this hill. So I started pulling up some, 
some grasses and leaves and sort of very conscious of the fact this is Australia and there's scorpions and snakes and spiders. That, you know, in New Zealand, we don't have any of that. It's a very benign country. There's one, 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 one dangerous spider that if you corner it, put your finger and push it into its jaws, it will bite you and you'll feel quite ill. But that's about as dangerous as it gets in New Zealand. So, uh, um, you know, it was, it was quite scary. But it was like, oh, it's not too cold. You know, it's Australia. It wasn't going to get cold. I wasn't going to freeze to death. Um, and I was just getting ready to lie down. And it was something I was still quite at ease and relaxed, surprisingly in a way, because it's like I knew where the path was. It's down there. <laughs> And then the moon came out and it got a little bit light and I was just contemplating and I thought, you know, you think the path's down there but you've been down there several times. You know, the path's not down there. You don't know where it is. And in that moment, like a lightning bolt exploding through my whole being, this visceral bodily fear just ripped through my whole system. Like My mind just went, poof, gone. And it was like, it was, I don't know what it's like to be struck by lightning, but it might be something like that, because it was very extreme and intense. And there was a moment of pure, unadulterated terror, in which my mind, with the speed that minds can do, it was like, you don't know where you are, you are going to die out here, nobody's going to come looking for you, you could have completely got yourself disoriented somehow, you fool, you know, this is going to be really embarrassing as well as fatal. <laughs> You know, all of that in a microsecond flipped through my mind. And I was like, oh! And then I breathed, and it was like, you don't know where the path is. And then the second the thought that came after that was, yeah, and that's scary, but actually, you do know where the path isn't. <laughs> and the path is not down there where you've been looking for it. That's clear. And it was a bit more light. And I thought, okay, so I don't really want to spend the night out here. So I, I broke off a, a branch from a dead tree to have it as a, a stick. I said, okay, well, he thought it was down there, but it wasn't. So why don't you try turning 40 degrees, 45 degrees, and go down there? And I started going down there. My mind was saying, you know it's not down here, it's over there. My mind still didn't believe it wasn't where I thought it was all the time. And I went down, and I went down, and eight minutes after I started heading down, path. I made it back to the cootie by midnight, rather humbled by the experience. But you know what's really interesting is that I was stuck out there. I was trapped by my unwillingness to admit that I didn't know where the path was, by my need to defend against the fear and the vulnerability of having got lost, by continuing to believe I knew where it was. And so long as I held on to that, I couldn't find the path. And once I let it go and faced the fear, and you know, I was fortunate. It was the first time, but I realised, oh, I'll go down here. If I go down here and it's not down there, I'll come back up and I'll do another 45 degrees round. I'll go down there. And at some point, I'm going to find it because it's down there. But anyway, there's this process in our journey where we're asked to let go of the certainties and the assumptions and the beliefs we hold about who we are, about what we are, about what's going to happen in the very next moment. And just see, can we turn up wide open to meet this, to allow ourselves to be touched 
by our life. There is a fear that arises in the face of the unknownness of things. And of course there is a place for taking care of ourselves with regard to known danger. There's a skill in, in this case for myself, not just sticking my hand into bushes, but using a stick or checking, you know, because there might be a dangerous creature, creature dangerous to my well-being. You know, we do need to take care of where there is danger. But a lot of what we actually do is we hold ourselves back from what's possible. And we don't need to. Because what's possible is already happening. And we're surviving it. And we're okay in it, in fact. Not always easy, sure. Sometimes really difficult, indeed. But it's already happening. This process of letting go is where we align ourselves with what's true. But what's true is already so. And so in holding back from opening into the unknownness of things, we're only holding back from allowing ourselves to come into balance, into equilibrium with the way things are. And it's something that asks us to really bring a deep sense of courage and trust. And courage is this quality of of strength in the heart that's willing to say, yeah, sure, I'm scared. Of course we do, and sometimes appropriately feel fear. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's the willingness to follow what feels true, despite the fear. And so there's this sense that we have where we're asked to let go here into each moment, to let go of our dependence on the mind construction process to give us our reference points, our certainties, and our escape paths. And to see, what if I was just right here? What would that be like? Joseph Goldstein, another one of the senior teachers and elders of our tradition, he once observed, he said, Letting go is like going out on a plane to do a parachute jump. And you kind of leave yourself out of the plane and you make the jump and then you realize you've forgotten your parachute and there's this moment of, ah, he said, and then you realize there's no ground. What would that be? To see that we're already in the midst of this, that we're held by. And uh, I worked at IMS for a couple of years. It's the retreat centre that Joseph founded with Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg, now 35 or more years ago. Actually, almost 40 years ago. And uh, when I left, they gave me a card that said on it, Could you tell the difference between falling and flying? if there was no ground. The experience is the same. And that sense of where we try and make our ground in certainties, when that starts to dissolve, there's a different kind of buoyancy that we discover that's somewhat more fluid, somewhat less defined, but nonetheless 
Floating is what happens. Buoyancy is what we start to notice. And this is actually the condition in which we are floating already. And so then perhaps we may feel moved to bow down to this life. To say yes to how it is. And see what we discover. Finish with a quote from one of my uh, beloved teachers, Ajahn Sachito, who I also feel very fortunate to know as a friend. And uh, he's the He's an English Buddhist monk who's the abbot of Chithurst Buddhist Monastery, Chittaviveka, in West Sussex. And he, he gave a talk on an occasion when I first met him while in Asia. And um, he'd been walking for some months in pilgrimage. And he, he, he came and he gave this talk, which I was very touched by. And there's a piece that I'd like to share with you. And I need my glasses. Suddenly wondering, why can't I quite read it? It takes a moment sometimes for us to catch up with ourselves. He says, There is no real learning on the intellectual level. There is only a kind of learning that we do when we have the humility to recognize that really the learning part is when we go to the edge of where we know and where we control. And the nobility of our life, the nobility of our purpose the aspiration of our life says, keep going past the area where you can't control it anymore and trust. For me, this is the heart of devotion, of faith, of surrender. Not a surrender of responsibility, but a profound recognition of what the responsibility of this being is. To live in accordance with truth. To honour the truth and to trust the truth of our life. As it is. What lies beyond me and control and the sense of self is the joy of the deathless, the joy of the boundless, the mysterious vastness of life.
So may we all, here in our practice and in our lives, may we come to understand and be at ease with the uncertainty of things. And may we come to rest in the buoyancy of life and the vastness for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.